We welcome you to part two of our series on evolution on trial. If you'll please turn in your outline sheets to lecture number two, the Bible and evolution. It is one thing to successfully demonstrate to an intelligent, scientifically minded person that evolution is not a viable, rational model of Earth history. It is entirely a different problem to demonstrate what the correct model might be. There are many, many disillusioned evolutionists who, in fact, have, to all intents and purposes, given up their model and are floundering about waiting for something better to show up. Well, it's our purpose tonight to present an alternative to evolutionism, namely the Christian approach to ultimate origins. Now, immediately, the average university student in this generation will uh, refuse to listen further because, in his opinion, the, the Christian approach is a religious option which is not acceptable in an empirically-minded, scientifically-oriented uh, academic community. I would like to hasten to point out that there's new light on the subject today, namely that evolution is a religion too. Now this is a brand new discovery <laughs> for many people. Any total world and life view that not only explains where everything came from and where everything will end and how everything functions in between and what it's all for is talking religiously. He is projecting faith on the canvas of the universe because it is impossible for any finite mind to know all reality and how it interrelates by objective empirical science. It used to be a favorite introduction to supposedly highly objective uh, scientific studies of this or that phenomenon to uh, encourage the reader with words like this. Uh, dear reader, having set aside all prejudice and all bias, we now look at nothing but the facts. That type of attitude is now totally passe. Why? Positivism is impossible for the human mind. There is no such thing as a pure, self-interpreting fact. Every fact in the universe is part of a system that must be explained or interpreted on the basis of some authority. And uh, too often we flatter ourselves to say that we are very non-religious and very objective and very scientific when, as a matter of fact, these words are simply a screen, a cover-up for a basically religious commitment to the reality of the universe, a certain way of explaining things which will color and drastically shape your lifestyle, your attitude, your relationship to other people, your life goals, your moral standards, and so on. You say, well, I don't have a religion. Well, you do have one because you just stated it, and it'll have drastic implications for your whole world and life view. 
the honest thing nowadays to do in the light of further analysis of the so-called uh, uh, scientific concept of evolutionism is to admit that evolution is a faith. Christianity is a faith. The question is, which faith do you prefer and on what basis? I have a number of excellent books that discuss that very problem. Uh, many have analyzed, for instance, uh, Charles Darwin's uh, religious, deep religious conviction concerning the nature, origin, and destiny of the world. He was not objective in these areas. Neither were his followers. No one can be, quote, totally objective without bringing in some kind of a background impression or worldview to interpret the data. Now, let's be at least this objective, namely to admit that we do have a bias in the way we look at reality. We do have presuppositions that we bring to bear upon the things that we see, the phenomena, the data that come through our senses. Uh, some kind of a screening system that filters out things that we're not interested in and things that we think are significant. Otherwise, our mind is simply swamped with billions of uninterpreted, unrelated data, and that would produce mental chaos. You have to have a screening system in your mind to decide which data are important to you, which are relevant, which are significant, and which are not, and what they prove and what they don't prove. Where does that screen come from? Where does that sorting mechanism come from? From faith in the basic nature of reality. Now, admitting then that we all operate and function this way, what are the alternatives in the creation model on the one hand and the evolution model on the other? Henry Morris, among others, has been very helpful in this area as they have promoted across this nation and the Western world what is called the two-model approach to origins in public tax-supported, state-supported school systems. Uh, the evolution model, for example, involves continuing naturalistic origins, but the creation model completed supernatural origins. The evolution model, net present increase in complexity, the creation model, net present decrease in complexity. The evolution model, earth history dominated by uniformitarianism. The creation model, earth history dominated by catastrophism. These are absolutely, 100%, totally opposite interpretations of earth history and natural processes in our world. In fact, that each of those can be extended almost indefinitely into sub-subcategories with predictions involved in terms of each model. This, if you're interested, is on page 12 of Morris's book, Scientific Creationism. Has been very uh, beautifully spelled out also in his smaller book, The Scientific Case for Creation. Notice, the scientific case for creation. You say, I didn't know creation had a scientific case. I thought it was a religion that it was just sort of a surrender to the mystery of it all in which you put your mind in the third gear and don't think seriously about the data or the phenomena anymore. Sort of a mysticism, an uh, academic intellectual cop-out. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Creationism has enormous scientific implications. 
and a scientific case can be made out for creationism. Our approach tonight, and I'm speaking to you now as a Christian who was an evolutionist and experienced a catastrophe in my life at Princeton University 35 years ago. At that time, in 1942-43, I was studying in the geology department courses in historical geology and paleontology, earth history, diastrophism, orogeny, volcanism, uh, the fossil record, etc. At the end of that year, a total positive catastrophe occurred to me when I was confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ and the authority of the Bible. I did not come from a Christian home. I never attended a Bible teaching church. This was totally radically new to me as an evolutionist. For the first time in my life, I was confronted with the possibility that there is a living personal God who is responsible for the fantastically complex, beautiful, functional universe in which we live. I discovered in the pages of this book that that God is not a distant, remote, inaccessible, unknowable being who is simply some kind of a philosophical cop-out to explain what we can't explain scientifically. That that God is not only personal, but has infinite concern for men demonstrated by his incarnation, that is, becoming a human being and walking this earth less than 2,000 years ago and laying down his life as a final sacrifice for the sin of man, followed by a resurrection from the dead. That confrontation with the Christ of the Bible totally and permanently transformed, revolutionized my life in a spiritual catastrophe. And I'm here tonight speaking to you as one who has been totally immersed in both models, and I'm here to say to you that the creation model, the Christian approach to origins, is not only equally satisfying in terms of empirical science, but is vastly more satisfying not only scientifically, but ethically and spiritually as well. Therefore, I have since then, 1943, dedicated my life to Jesus Christ and to the study of his word and a promotion of biblical alternatives to naturalistic evolutionism. For the last 27 years, I have been professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana, uh, specializing in the early chapters of Genesis and their relevance for a scientific worldview in terms of origins. So I want to be honest with you tonight. I come to the data with a new screening system. And the screen is this one, the Holy Bible. Now you say, well, this isn't very scientific. I want to say something about that. A study of the teachings of the Bible concerning the origin of the world, among a thousand other vitally important topics for life and well-being, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, for man, as God intended him to be, is a highly scientific discipline, which we call biblical hermeneutics and biblical exegesis. 
Now, exegesis is simply bringing out what is in the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek words as to exactly, precisely what is meant, what is said. Hermeneutics is how to interpret those words in context, the setting in which each word appears in a sentence, in a paragraph, in a chapter, in a book, in the progress of revelation in the entire 66 books of the Bible. I and my colleagues at the seminary, with the 400 graduate students we have in our theological seminary, and the dozen other large theological seminaries that share our total conviction on the truth, the absolute truth and inerrancy of the text of the Bible, operate on this assumption that the words of the Bible honestly studied and interpreted in the light of their context self-interpreting methods that the Bible provides by which you can check what it really means. Have come to the conclusion that the Bible presents an opposite model of origins, which is superior to the evolution model and is totally honoring to the God who authored this book. Now, what is that model? All right. Notice, please, in your outline, three things. Number one, the time required for creating the universe. Number two, the order of events in creating the universe. And number three, the basic creation method. First of all, the time required for creating the universe. Now, the purely scientific model of creation does not discuss this problem. It merely shows on the basis of extrapolating on a uniformitarian basis into the past, present observable processes and comes up with an amazing conclusions, which by the way, we will be discussing tomorrow night concerning the age of the earth. But it cannot, in the nature of the case, tell you how long the creation event occurred, how long it, it lasted. The biblical record fills in that blank with vital information. Now, this, I'm sure, will be a great shock to many people. I just ask you to hear me out, and then you can uh, fire away with your questions. <laughs> the Genesis record, honestly and carefully studied, presents an unbreakable time block of creation events. What do we mean by that? We mean that the time required for the creation of the world is theologically essential to communicate the nature and attributes of the Creator. Did you know that Genesis 1 leaves absolutely no stone unturned to communicate the idea that the universe was not created over billions and billions of years, but created very, very suddenly. In fact, within one literal week of six 24-hour days. Why? All right, look at the uh, A, B, C, D, and E points very quickly. The word day in the Bible, we're talking about the days of creation now, the word day in the Bible doesn't necessarily prove anything. The Hebrew word yom can mean a long period of time, like the day of the Lord or the day of tribulation or the day of uh, Abraham or something, just like in English. But when the word day has a number attached to it, it always becomes a 24-hour unit, just like in English. He went on a five-day journey. Day immediately becomes 24-hour period. He arrived on the seventh day. Seven what? 
24-hour units. And every day of creation week has a numerical adjective with it. Nowhere in the Old Testament does a numerical adjective attached to the word day mean anything else than a 24-hour period. Secondly, with every creation day, you have the evening-morning formula also. It was evening and morning, fifth day. Evening and morning, sixth day. Every creation day has that formula. What does that mean? It means one cycle of the rotation of the Earth on its axis in reference to a fixed astronomic light source, such as the sun. It's a Hebrew expression, technically, for 24 hours. Thirdly, in Exodus 20:11, God said to Israel, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, for in six days the Lord thy God created heaven, earth, sea, and all that in them is. And no Israelite ever thought to himself, well, since God's days are long, indefinite periods of time, we will labor six long, indefinite periods of time and rest one. That never occurred to any Jew or any Christian in the history of Israel or the church until the supposed pressure of modern uniformitarian geology converged upon the Hebrew Christian community. In other words, the text is very clear. Point D, if you're not really sure what day means in Genesis 1, look at verse 14. This is what we mean when we say the Bible has remarkable ways to interpret itself if you're really serious about knowing what it's trying to say. Look at verse 14, Genesis 1. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, seasons, days, and years. Now, if days are not literal days, then what are years? You are obviously locked into the two absolutely precise astronomic time units of this planet. A day is one cycle of the Earth's rotation. A year is one cycle of the Earth's orbit. And they have never changed in duration. Point E. The New Testament shows you why these days are very brief time units. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Now, that does not prove that the days lasted thousands of years. It proves the opposite. It proves, you see, that one short, short period of time is with God as a long, long period of time to men because he is superior to men in his power to accomplish incredible things in a short period. In reverse formula, a thousand years, which is a very, very long period for a man, a thousand years is more than enough to finish you and me totally. But what does it do to God? Nothing. A thousand years to him are but as a day. Now the formula is destroyed if you say, well, day means a long period of time. You see? You follow me? If you say a thousand years to God is but as a long period of time, you've said nothing. So that formula shows that the days of creation have to be short to prove something theologically about God. Now, here's, here's what it proves. It proves that God is infinitely superior to man in his power to accomplish things as a creator. Did you know that human beings can create nothing? Absolutely nothing. Or we can refashion and form things. We cannot create ex nihilo anything from nothing. But God can. In fact, the whole message of God's infinite power is destroyed if the days are stretched to billions of years to allow him plenty of time to do his work because of his inadequate power to do it suddenly. Let me illustrate how this works. The Bible insists 
on the fact that the actual creator of the heavens and earth, the universe, is Jesus Christ, who died upon a cross in Palestine. Did you know that? In John chapter 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, the New Testament insists on the fact that the Son of God, the second person of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the second person created the universe. To demonstrate to men, empirically, how he did it. He walked this planet, and in three incredible years of public ministry in Israel, here's what he did. He did exactly the same kinds of things he did in Genesis 1. One day in a raging storm in the Sea of Galilee, the Gospels of the New Testament tell us that Jesus Christ stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and a week later, they calmed down. Is that what it says? <laughs> no. I wonder why it didn't happen that way. You know, don't you? Because the disciples would have said, well, what did his word accomplish? It would have calmed down anyhow. And they're right. You see, by stretching the time interval between the command and the fulfillment in the natural world, you dissipate the impact, the electrifying impact of his omnipotence. But now watch what did happen. Jesus Christ, creator of the world, according to the Bible, rebuked the wind and the waves of a stormy sea, and instantly it was as calm as glass. And the disciples, in absolute terror, in astonishment, said, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and waves obey him? Now, one of the basic philosophic religious objections to a brief creation period in Genesis 1 is this that if we have God creating the world in such a very brief period of time, his power and his sovereignty and his presence and his authority is overwhelmingly crushing. And I want to say, dear friend, tonight, that has enormous moral and spiritual implications. A God who can do this and who has put you into a created world that was created supernaturally by his infinite mind and word is a God that is inescapable. But to dissipate this power and presence by stretching the days over billions of years accomplishes an amazing thing in the minds of men. Here's what it is. Well, maybe God somewhere back there billions of years ago before, during, or after the Big Bang probably created the universe, and we have had nothing really to do with him since. That is the end of biblical Christianity. You say, well, if God could do it that fast, why didn't he do it instantly instead of over six days? And here's another aspect of his character. He said to Israel, listen carefully, in Exodus 20:11, Six days shalt thou labor and do thy work and rest the seventh. Why? For in six days the Lord thy God created heaven, earth, sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh. In other words, Israel, I know you can't do all your work instantly, like I can, so I have deliberately stretched out my work of creation over an entire seven-day period, subdividing it into 24-hour units, to serve as an adequate model for your cycle of work and rest. 
God accommodated himself to man's limitations in what we call infinite grace. By having the work done within a week, his omnipotence can never be questioned. By stretching it over a week, his concern and involvement and grace can never be questioned. I want to say that you tamper with the time block of Genesis 1 and you've destroyed the double message of God to the human race. You see, that is what exegesis and hermeneutics do. They say, look, we know that evolution wants billions of years and we don't want to be antagonistic to the general consensus of contemporary scientific opinion, so let's twist the text to make it say what we hope it will say. That is total dishonesty. This is what we call theological liberalism that can take an incredibly detailed, authoritative message from God and shape it and mold it and twist it into conformity with our presuppositions. True, that will create perhaps acceptance and popularity in the contemporary scene, but it is totally dishonest with the message. Now look please at uh, point two. The order of events in creating the universe. Did you know that not only the time, but the order is incredibly important? If you stretch the days of creation to billions of years to somehow shape them into the geologic timetable of uh, uniformitarian evolutionism, you nevertheless find a hopeless contradiction in the order in which things appeared, according to Genesis. For example, Genesis boldly tells you that the earth was created first and the sun, moon, and stars later. It boldly tells you that uh, fruit trees were created first and marine creatures later. It boldly assures you that uh, birds, flying creatures, were created first and reptiles later that whales and other aquatic mammals were created first and land mammals later. Say, so what are you trying to tell us? Just this, that the evolution model collapses under such pressure of harmonization with the order of events in Genesis 1. There is no way, no way that evolutionism can survive with planet Earth first and the system from which it supposedly evolved by condensation from a gas dust nebula through billions of years later. You have to make a fundamental decision at that point. Now, what's the decision? Well, look, just let me elaborate again. Fruit trees first. Well, all evolutionists must insist that fruit trees are among the latest arrivals in Earth history in the plant kingdom having evolved from previously existing marine creatures. And that birds evolved from previously existing reptiles. And that whales evolved from previously existing land mammals. Now, what does this chapter do to that system? It destroys it. And it does so deliberately. Let me explain if I can. The evolution of the planet Earth is a totally unsolved enigma of astronomy. 
as far as that's concerned, so is the evolution of the moon, or any of the planets and moons, or the comets, or the sun. In fact, every part of the solar system, the more we learn of its complexity and its interrelationships and movements, becomes a hopeless enigma in terms of uniformitarian evolutionism. Why? Because as you look at the rotational pattern of the planets, Venus spins backwards, Uranus spins horizontally, four of the 12 moons of Jupiter are orbiting backwards, so is one of Saturn's moons, and all five of Uranus's are orbiting vertically. One of Neptune's is going backwards and the other forwards. What does all this say? It, it says that no evolution model can explain such total anomalies. The comets are the chronometer of the solar system in a sense, and they're telling us something about the recency of the origin of the system. They're so ephemeral, so fragile, that if they have been moving through interplanetary space for more than 10,000 years, they all would have vanished. The moon. We have spent billions of dollars to discover the key to the mystery of the origin of the moon. What have we found? We have found things that have totally destroyed previously accepted evolution models of the moon's origin. In our book on the, on the moon, it's Creation, Form, and Significance, co-authored with a professor of physics at Grace College. We have enlisted the help of 70 astronomers and physicists and other specialists in analyzing the significance of the Apollo mission discoveries of the form structure of the moon and have found, to our amazement, that the moon is not a cold, dead body but a very hot and very lively body, which gives clear evidence of design and recent supernatural creation. The same is true of the Earth. There are fantastic evidences available now of the recent origin of the planet. You say, what are they? Well, just to name a few, the evidence from uh, radio halos of the... Uh, radiometric structure of the Earth's rocks, the evidence of very limited meteoritic dust particles on the Earth's surface when you could expect enormous masses of them like you would on the Moon, which do not exist, the fact that the Earth's electromagnetic field is deteriorating so rapidly that every 1,400 years it's half as powerful as it was before, and therefore the Earth cannot have had life on it more than 10 or 15,000 years. Things that we don't hear because they do not fit the currently popular model of the evolution of the earth. Now, what is Genesis saying? It is saying to us that the evolution model never was true, never will be. It is impossible. This solar system could not have begun by chance. It could not have gradually formed over billions of years by naturalistic processes. And therefore, the God of creation designed the solar system in such a way that the order of events in the appearance of its basic functioning parts demands a worship of the creator and not of the parts of the system. As you probably know, the Old Testament speaks constantly against sun worship. All ancient nations in Babylon, Egypt, the Aztecs, and so forth worship the sun as a deity. 
because of its obvious, essential contribution to life. Genesis, theologically speaking, loses its message, its impact, if, as a matter of fact, the sun had a part in the creation of the earth by virtue of its being contemporaneous, at least. And in order to communicate to the mind of man that the earth was not created by a proto-sun or some previous astronomic system, but is a direct product of the mind and power of God, it is created first and the creation of the sun is postponed to a later phase in creation events to demote it as a non-essential, non-ultimate, non-divine being. Now, in our culture, the literal worship of the sun is a very subtle thing. It's done not in an open religious way, as in ancient nations and some modern cultures. But nevertheless, evolutionism accomplishes this by assuring us that all life on this planet began through the action of sunlight on primordial chemicals in a shallow sea. That all living things have evolved, including human beings, by the action of sunlight on those complex organisms. And that as long as the sun continues to shine, life will continue to exist on this planet. And when it dies, life is finished forever. Now you see, that is a worship system. That's a religion. Even though we don't have priests and temples and sacrifices to the sun, we are saying of that thing in the sky that it is our God. Anything that totally explains your origin, existence, and destiny is your God. Use a small g if you want. It's a religion. And Genesis 1 is designed deliberately to smash solar worship. Now that, of course, is spoiled by reversing the order of events in the chapter to make them more meaningful for some kind of a harmonization process between the geologic and astronomic timetable and Genesis 1. That is a dishonest approach to the chapter. And there are many strange ways in which that is attempted. It simply cannot succeed. You say, well, this is a very discouraging and shocking thing because everything I've been taught, everything I've read and studied contradicts this. You see, Genesis 1 is designed with this in mind, that you will be so profoundly shocked by what it says that you will never recover. If you read Genesis 1, the opening chapter of the only book God claims to have written, and say to yourself, this has no significant message to me. It doesn't disturb my presuppositions, my worldview, my lifestyle. You have misread it. The Bible is designed to tell you things you could never discover apart from special revelation and to try and somehow mold it and shape it and change it and fit it into your presuppositions is to destroy it. Jesus Christ said this. He said, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but to bring a sword and to divide men one from another, even members of... Because you see, divine truth is fantastically divisive. 
The ultimate purpose, of course, is healing. But much healing depends upon surgery first. And that is especially true in theology. A drastic catastrophe, as I explained earlier, a great catastrophe happened in my life. My evolutionary presuppositions were totally shattered. I have never recovered. Point three, the basic creation method. Many have attempted to take creationism as another word for evolutionism. This is sometimes called theistic evolution, namely, let's have God, yes, but he uses evolution, doesn't he, as his method. No, that is not what this book teaches. Now, let me be honest with you tonight. You do not have to believe the Bible. It's a free world. You can believe any system, any model, any hypothesis, any world and life view you want to. But if you have the slightest desire to investigate and somehow relate to or be identified with a Christian worldview, this textbook, the Bible, is your final source of truth. It is totally satisfying, totally dependable, totally self-consistent, although deeply shocking in much of what it says to modern society and modern minds. Now, can you really take creation as another word for evolution? No. Here's why. Evolution says you start with very, very simple little things which through time and chance become very complex things. But Genesis says you start with highly complex things and nothing is done by chance or time. Time and chance have no part in creation. An infinite mind with a model, a blueprint, a plan, an omnipotent creative word, and fantastically complex things with the capacity within them for variation within the kind and subsequent history is the, is the model of creationism. Complex things first. Why? Because if you don't start with complex things, now think of the logic of this. If you don't start with highly complex things, the second law of thermodynamics guarantees you'll never end with them. You say, well, can't we at least start with an acorn and have the oak tree later? Can't we start with an embryo and have the full man later? Well, really, this is sort of silly, isn't it? Because where did the acorn come from or the embryo? In other words, the embryonic form of a biologic entity has all the complexity programmed into it. You don't start from something simple to something complex when you start with an acorn and end with an oak tree. Thermodynamically, it can be demonstrated, in fact, that an acorn is more complex because it's more pure and therefore less probable than the oak tree at the end of the line and the same for a human adult as com compared to the fertilized egg from which he has developed. Now Genesis fits that picture by honestly, directly and opening alleging that the human race began with adults, not babies. Human beings not only did not come from apes, 
They did not even come from babies. Why not? Because starting with a baby not only doesn't help, it actually hinders God's purpose for human history by involving a long preliminary stage in human history when miraculous intervention would have been necessary to bring the babies to proper maturity as adults without the help of human parents. And this is the principle of the economy of miracle. Instead of having complex, anti-scientific, supernatural interventions to make the thing turn out right in the end by reprogramming ape DNA material to finally read Homo sapiens and starting with babies and trying to somehow get them to become adults, God honestly, openly, and directly tells you the facts and allows the sledgehammer to fall right upon our evolutionary presupposition. Namely, nothing started simple and nothing started by chance and no long periods of time were needed at all. Living things were created to reproduce how? After their kind, after their kind. Ten times it says that in the opening chapter, how basically important this is for the creation model. Things were created with a conservative trend, that is, to maintain the kind, not innovative or experimental or random but conservative. The first law of thermodynamics predicts that through the passing of time, there will be no addition and no subtraction from the total amount of mass energy in the universe. That is what a creation model would predict and not an evolution model. Creation model predicts that through the passing of time, highly complex things that started will tend to become less and less available for useful work in quality. No change in quantity, but a decrease of quality. The evolution model cannot predict that. For instance, the sun losing five million tons of its mass every second to bathe the solar system in radiant energy, illumination, and warmth will never regain that loss. It is losing its original quality. It can never regain it. I have found this helpful, and with this we will end. Whereas evolution says that all living things belong to one gigantic complex family tree of life that supposedly emerged two billion years or three billion years ago from a primordial single-celled speck of life. And that from that branched out by unknown methods with broken branches in the tree, of course, the systematic gaps in the fossil record, until finally we come to this vast complexity of contemporary life forms in the plant and animal kingdoms. And that everything from men to apple trees evolved through time and chance from that first speck, the family tree of life. Everything that lives and moves and breathes is interrelated on one family tree. This is, of course, the monophyletic theory. I don't really think there's any significant alternative in evolutionism. I really don't think evolutionists today are seriously considering that there are various family trees totally unconnected. Now, what is the evolution model as compared to creation model? It becomes a highly speculative, speculative non-empirical, 
in fact, anti-scientific concept. But creation model is just the opposite. Granted the kind of a God that this Bible asks you to believe. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. It's impossible to know him. He demands faith in his character, his attributes, his promises, his claims, his word. With that faith projection in the God of Scripture, the God of Christianity, Jesus Christ, what model do we end up with on creation? We end up not with a family tree, but with a forest of trees, of hundreds of thousands of distinct trees unconnected with each other by root or branch. And each tree, called a kind, in the light of Genesis 1 and Leviticus 11, which further defines what the Genesis kinds are, you find that within each tree, each genotype, the capacity for branches, yes. In mankind, look at the branches, the different racial types that were all programmed as latent potentialities through uh, gene uh, selection and uh, subdivision, uh, isolation, inbreeding into the various physical types in the world today. But variations do not in any way deny the unity of that kind. All men who have ever lived or now live are fully human, fully possessed of the image and likeness of this God with all the attributes of conscience and rational speech capacity and uh, so on, and are capable of intermarrying and producing fertile offspring. Over here is the tree of dog kind, 200 varieties of dogs, Great Danes, Dachshunds, Toy Poodles, Bulldogs, Box Terriers, and so on. But all dogs have exactly the same DNA code and chromosome count and will never become anything but dogs while the world remains. Cat kind, many varieties, but totally different in their DNA programming from dogs or people. And while the world remains, no cat can ever become a dog or a dog a cat because they are fixed into their kind by creation. A conservation of kinds, not just of mass energy, but of kinds. And so you have mankind, dog kind, cat kind, elephant kind, four basic varieties we're aware of. The mammoth and mastodon varieties are dead and extinct, but the elephants of India and Africa are the two remaining ones. But elephants can never become anything other than elephants and never were. And you go down the whole spectrum of basic kinds of plants and animals. And the creation model predicts that you start with fantastic complexity and differences in the blueprints. And as time goes on, through negative environmental influences, the kinds maintaining their identity until extinction, of course, tend gradually to drift downward in genetic quality through inherited mutations. This, then, is the creation model, which must be analyzed within the framework of the self-revelation of Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, and the redeemer of man. You say, well, really, how do you know that that model is superior? I want to be honest with you tonight on that as well. You can never discover which model is best by mastering all the differences between the creation and evolution model as it applies to fossils and to biochemistry 
and mathematical probabilities and other features of science that we've discussed tonight. God never intended you to be able to master all these sciences before you found out who he is. Jesus put it this way, unless you become as a little child, you cannot in any way enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, to take God at his word and to say in your heart to him, Lord, I don't understand everything about science and the universe and astronomy, all the sciences, but I hear your voice through this book to the depth of my being. And somehow it meets my deepest need. It describes what I really am. It tells me where I'm going. That was my discovery by the grace of God. I commend the Christ of creation to you. And I appreciate so much your coming.